0: Welcome to the Truthiverse. My name is Brendan D. Murphy. This is where we unleash truth and freedom with no holds barred, no fear, and no limits. Come and evolve beyond the matrix with me and thrive, not just survive. This is a realm of empowering, uncommon awareness. This is my Truthiverse. These days positively charged toxic EMF are everywhere but your biofield runs on a negative charge just like your body's cells so how do you protect it? I've been using organ effects products like the GeoCleanse and Enerband for years because their technology addresses what others don't, that is the subtle toxic positive charge field of harmful EMF, neutralizing it. Head to BrendanMurphy.global/EMF to learn more and get yours and enter Murphy at checkout for 10% off. All right, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this episode of Truthiverse. This week, I'm joined by Professor Patrick Nunn, who is, uh, as I said, a professor at the University of the Sunshine Coast on the uh, lovely sunny coast of Australia. Uh, professor of geology, if I'm not mistaken, as well. And uh, I have read some interesting work by Patrick, and he's been—he's yeah, been doing some very interesting work. Around the oral traditions of uh, indigenous peoples and the documentation, the verbal documentation or recording of the sea levels rising and these these types of huge, um, even catastrophic events down through thousands of years, and researching whether or not the the, the tales and so called myths are actually um, based in reality and and verifiable. So, um, with that said, Patrick, we're going to dive into that. Thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat.
1: It's a real pleasure, Brendan. I'm looking forward to this.
0: Yeah, yeah. I've, I meant to book this with Patrick months ago, ladies and gents, so uh, it's my fault that it didn't happen a bit sooner, but <laughs> we made it. Um, so Patrick, can you tell me, just to give us a bit of background, so you're a professor of geology, um, what, what is, just in a nutshell, what is your background, and how did you get into studying this particular subject?
1: Okay, well, I, I'm I'm from the UK originally. I, I... Have a PhD in sort of geography geology. It's it's kind of at the interface. And then um, after I got my PhD, I knew I wanted to work in a university, and there weren't any jobs in the UK at the time. So I thought, okay, I'll uh, I'll apply for this job at the University of the South Pacific in the, uh, um, in the middle of the Pacific ocean. And uh, I'll go out there for three years and go back to the UK and uh, follow a fairly uh, predictable pathway for the rest of my life. But I ended up going to the University of the South Pacific, which serves 12 different Pacific Island countries and staying there for 25 years um, and never, never really coming back to going back to live in the UK. Um, And I, I think what actually got me around to where I am today, I, I mean, I'm a conventionally trained geologist and climate scientist. I've worked a lot with the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, um, you know, for more than 20 years now. Um, and I think what brought me to to what we're going to talk about today is the fact that when I lived in the Pacific Islands, I I met people who not only could could not speak English or could not write English but couldn't read or write um and I, I don't say that in a kind of judgmental way because the impact of meeting those people and hearing what they had in their heads that they could recall and that they could explain in a kind of organized and rational way was was quite mind-blowing to me um, it had never occurred to me that people could hold that amount of information in their heads in, in a uh, in a well-organized way um, and be able to relate it at, at will. Um, and that really gave me a profound respect for oral traditions and for uh, oral knowledges, if you like. And it also made it clear to me, I think, how much literacy has has damaged that, that very very long human legacy, um, the legacy of all of our ancestors who um, who passed knowledge down for thousands and thousands of years um, orally um, and most of that has been lost today so look to cut a long story short, then I moved to Australia in 2010 and uh, came into uh, became exposed to uh, indigenous Australian or Aboriginal stories um, some of which uh, I think we can demonstrate fairly convincingly um, must have endured for more than seven or eight thousand years um, so uh yes so it's that that's brought me to this uh, this present situation
0: yeah it's really interesting so the the encountering of these people who had this phenomenal you know memory recall it must have been kind of like encountering one of the bards of yore you know they they would memorize these vast amounts of verse and just insane amounts of information and be able to repeat it back to um, in a way that we now don't really, we don't really seem to have that capacity because we outsource it to you know computers and books and we write it down so that we can forget about it. you
1: know
0: precisely so, so precisely. Is that where you started um encountering? Is that where you started encountering these types of, uh, these stories and that—that's what piqued your interest was the the fact that the you know the so-called natives or the indigenous peoples had this these traditions that that really defied a conventional kind of a, uh, you know academic view and you you took it seriously obviously
1: absolutely yes yeah um, and look I I wasn't converted in an instant uh, by any means uh, you know I, I think I I grew up and I was trained with all the prejudices that liter- literate people have against. Illiterate people, Um, you know that illiteracy is uh, is a condition that needs to be rectified by making someone literate, Um, and I'm not saying that's that's not a a worthy objective, of course, in particular contexts. But I think what I am saying is, is that, you know, it really brought home to me the what I've called since in my writings the tyranny of literacy, the idea that you know literate people subordinate. Um, knowledge that is not written down, uh, and and you're absolutely right. We we outsource everything today, um, and and even myself, and I'm a bit older than you. But you know, when I was young. I used to pride myself on the fact I could remember maybe twenty or thirty phone numbers in my head, you know, the important ones, um, and you could remember your grandparents' birthdays and things like that because that's what you did. Um, but I say to my students today, no, no one, you know, how many phone numbers do you know? I mean, you probably don't know any because you just go to speed dial and press a name, you know. And how many birthdays do you know? You don't know any because you know your your calendar reminders sort of pop up a week before, so you know mm. to call granddad on a particular day. So you're absolutely. You're right we've outsourced all these things but that doesn't mean that our ancestors were the same um mm. and you know it became absolutely clear to me brendan that you know people in those kinds of context had and in some cases still have an immense capacity to store uh, and relate knowledge and, and if i could just you know if you could just indulge me for another please. 30 seconds please, um please. you know i i remember that You know, one of the first people that I met like this... He was called Michaeli Samu, um, and we we sat down with him one evening, um, at about seven o'clock in the evening, uh, and he we asked him to tell us a few stories, and and I thought, okay, well, we'll be out of here by eight thirty. You know, we were out of there at about three o'clock in the morning. You know, and he was still going. He was <laughs> so happy to be telling these stories, and they were no, there was no repetition. You know, it was stories about where his people had lived before, um, about the places that they'd known and the incidents that had taken there. And and who had married who and who had invaded who and who had uh, encountered who and, and and what happened and you know stories about you know great fishing expeditions and 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 you know all these kinds of things but it was all there and he knew it all and it was all um you know incredibly coherent and impressive it was like it was like reading a novel in a night
0: yeah i mean it's amazing to to meet anybody like that so You were you struck by the level of you know the intergenerational fidelity of these these stories and you know that you know from generation to generation were preserved with relatively high levels of integrity like so much so that we could actually you were able in your work to actually go back to the geology and the the geography and go oh this is actually this is true
1: (laughs) oh yes yeah I I I think. I think that's correct. Um, I mean, we can talk about Australia later because I think that's where the best examples of all of this come from. But just to stay with the Pacific for a minute, um, I have a I have a doctoral student who's just finishing her research. Um, and she and I went to this island in southern Fiji called Kandavu. Um, and about 2,500 years ago on Kandavu, a volcano erupted. And it was a big volcano. You can still see the mountain there today. It's called Nambukalevu. And we went from village to village on this quite large volcanic island. We went to about uh, 13 or 14 different communities. And in each of those communities, they had a story about the eruption of that volcano 2,500 years ago. Um, And once we'd got over our initial surprise that they still had a story that had lasted 2,500 years, we started to analyze the differences um, in the stories in different places. So the people close to the volcanic eruption had a story that was different to people who were further away from the volcanic eruption. And it all makes perfect sense. Um, and so here is a a, a tradition, a memory of, of a, a memorable event, a volcanic eruption um, that sent out an ash cloud and caused tsunamis and earth shaking and all this kind of thing. Um, uh, here we have a memory... 2500 years old that's preserved in at least 13 or 14 different contexts on this on this small island in not small but island in southern fiji um so i i think there's a lot more examples of this kind of thing that are out there and i'd love to see more uh research being done on this
0: yeah yeah um and just you know not i don't want to dwell on it necessarily but The, I'm just curious, the dating methods, you know, the, in, in the conventional world, like the geological community, the archaeological community, how do they know that the volcano, you know, erupted around about 2,500 years ago? Yeah, sure. That's, so that's, um,
1: that's something that we can do with with a high degree of precision these days. So basically, what we're looking at are the products of that volcanic eruption. So whether it was lava or whether it was sort of hot rocks, pyroclastic stuff that was chucked out uh, of the volcano, wherever that stuff landed or wherever it uh, wherever it moved across the land, we can look at something underneath. Um, you know, maybe a tree or something like that that it went over the top of, uh, and we can extract carbon from the remains of that tree and use radiocarbon uh, dating to to determine the age um, quite precisely so when i say 2500 years ago for this particular eruption you know it's plus or minus about 50 years um so it's not it's not spot on but it's within quite a narrow range so we know that um you know we know roughly ballpark when uh, when that eruption occurred and therefore how old those memories must be mm. uh, and that's the critical thing um and the point you made about replication fidelity of these memories is very important because um, clearly in each of those 13 or 14 communities, um, we were able to recognize this story as a memory of a volcanic eruption, of course, dressed up in 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 a bit of sort of mythological embellishment. You know, a, a god here getting angry with a god there, you know, and throwing a spear and dropping earth from, you know, baskets when they were flying through the air, all this kind of thing. Um, but once you look past that kind of um, superficial uh, information, <clears throat> Sorry, sufficient detail, um, then it's absolutely clear what they're talking about. This is mm. uh, a memory of a volcanic eruption. It's not the way we would, des- we would describe it today, mm. um, but it is the way that people described it 2,500 years ago, you know, within the,
0: the framework of their worldview exactly yeah and, and cultures all around the world did that same thing like particularly you know the aboriginal cultures of australia did the exact same thing they would dress it up in their with their versions of the, the gods of the, the animal you know the animal gods this god the grandmother this kind of thing and she did this they did that to anthropomorphize their sort of understanding of the events but record it so that it could be told as a story uh for a long time later i'm i'm just curious do the the communities that you were, you know, researching—did um, they have a concept of like a chronological sense of of how far back their own story goes?
1: No, they didn't, um, and and I think that actually speaks, Brendan. It's a really good question. It it speaks to the way that people in other cultures perceive time differently to people in Western cultures. Um, so. When we went into these communities, and I I said to a few of them, I speak Fijian, I I said to a few of them, you know, this story is 2,500 years old, and and I expected them to be hugely impressed, but they just shrugged their shoulders and said, yeah, (laughs) you know, so what, (laughs) you know? You know, you're not telling us anything we didn't instinctively know. But the other thing that's really interesting about time is that one thing that I've found, particularly in Pacific Island communities, and I've been working in Solomon Islands and Vanuatu as well as Fiji recently, with a lot of very traditional communities. And their concept of time is quite different to ours, not in sort of an immediate sense of yesterday, today and tomorrow, um, but in the sense of... um, well we don't know whether to go and plant uh, this particular crop today so look we'll go and consult our ancestors who died 300 years ago um and and they'll go off into a special place in the forest and they'll sit down and they'll they'll talk to um to their ancestors and this is not something um unusual or uncommon or not something that's that's scoffed at it's it's Part and parcel of everyday decision making in these kinds of communities. So, um, not only is time conflated to some degree, but also the um, the the living and and the dead are, are conflated as well. And and you see that in a lot of Pacific Island cultures that um, death doesn't mean a, an end in the sense that the person who has died can no longer contribute to the well-being of of the community. Um, Mm. And look, as a conventionally trained Western scientist, I I find this kind of thing absolutely fascinating.
0: Mm. Yeah, well, it's kind of nice to to hear you say that rather than dismissing it out of hand, which is what I think most... Uh, you know, academics tend to do even even now, probably to a lesser extent. I mean, you might have have you noticed a trend towards becoming more open minded in that that community? Um, yeah, yeah, I I think so. Um, so in
1: two thousand and four. Um, I went to the uh, International Geological Congress in Italy uh, and presented a a paper, including one in a session on myth and geology. And it was a controversial session in the sense that the organizers of the International Geological Congress had pushed back against the idea of having a dedicated session on myth and geology. But I can tell you, Brendan, the room was packed for every single session. You know, it was overflowing. There were people crowding crowded in the doorways listening to this. It was such a fascinating topic to most of the geologists who were attending uh, that Congress. And I think you're right. Since then, um, there has been a sort of lessening of skepticism um, around others' knowledges and others' worldviews. Um, but there's still, I think, a, a huge mountain to climb there. Um, yeah, I, I um, you know, a lot of a lot of people that are that i know don't want to have anything to do with this kind of thing um really i mean it's uh, but you know they they are unduly focused i think on on their career progression and uh, and they're probably right in in that sense you know if i was a 25 year old university lecturer i probably wouldn't be sticking my neck out and saying some of the things that i do say around this but um you know i i've I, i've been in the business now for 30 years and uh, um yeah you know, i just think it's time to sort of tell it as I as I see it
0: yeah yeah I respect that a lot and and it's great that we have people doing exactly that um did you have you encountered much in the way of pushback or have you you know been censored or you know I mean what what has it been like because this is not you know like you've said this is not a conventional viewpoint at all and academia tends to be quite hostile towards unconventional points of view so have you had a lot of pushback
1: personally not really no I, 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 I don't I don't want to exaggerate this um, yes of course they've there've been one or two and sort of you know gray-haired professors who <laughs> you know I don't think this is really but you know, I um, really don't give a stuff I mean I I I' I've, like I say I'm I couldn't afford not to work at the moment because I've got a mortgage um, so I don't want to lose my job but at the same time I'm at a stage in my career where um, I, I feel secure enough to say everything that I can support um, with data, and and this is this is something that I was taught long ago by by a lot of the people that mentored me, was that when you're a scientist, you don't go in with preconceived ideas and find data that match your preconceptions. Um, you go in and you find the data and you let the data speak. Um, and this has always been my philosophy, is that you let the data speak. Whatever the data are saying, however um, however radical that may appear, um, you should, once you've tested everything you can test, allow the data to, um, to be foregrounded.
0: Mm. Yeah. And in this case, I think I would think that, you know, the original, particularly the original cultures or or nations of Australia would would take quite an interest in in this and maybe feel quite vindicated in in the work that you've produced because I mean it's really been quite astonishing in terms of being able to validate you know oh this is a this tradition might be as much as thirteen thousand years old an accurate record of geological you know landscape changes all this stuff going back that far I mean it's it is it's extremely interesting and, and I hope that there there's the same level of interest um in that community as well because they're, their story and their version of, um, you know, their culture has been so suppressed and beat down ever since uh, the, the original invasion. Um, So, so I think it's just so valuable aside from just being really interesting. It's so valuable on multiple levels. Um, Have you had a lot of, I mean, you must have had like a a certain level of interface with certain uh, Aboriginal groups in Australia um, to do this kind of work. Uh, Maybe, maybe we could touch on that. I mean, I know we're going to get to Australia anyway, but, uh maybe before that even if you like we could talk about some of the other areas where you've you've tracked these interesting stories and changes in the landscape um but but I want to let you take it wherever you want to go cuz uh, I know there's there's quite a bit to cover here and I just think it's really interesting in general so I'll let you steer the ship <laughs> well
1: Thank, thank you, Brendan. Um, I mean, the, fir- the first answer to your first question is that um, you're absolutely right. Um, indigenous people, particularly in Australia, have been very welcoming of this kind of research because it does demonstrate empirically the time depth of their traditions, which they have sensed for, uh, for a long, long time. Um, and it's also, I think, demonstrated that their knowledge systems, their worldviews are um, as valid um, as any other worldview, in, including a Western worldview. And um, and I think that that's quite a controversial message. I, I think that um, people who are trained in a Western worldview actually find it very very difficult to um, relinquish that and and start to um, think about the validity of others worldviews um but but look then getting on to the second part of of what you just said. I mean, before we get to to Australia, I mean, let me give you my classic example from the Western United States, which is of Crater Lake in Oregon. Um, And 7,600 years ago, Crater Lake was a massive uh, conical volcano, which we've named uh, Mount Mazama. Um, And it was an active volcano. It came to the end of its active life about 7,600 years ago uh, in a tumultuous explosion. Uh, It blew itself to pieces. And the remains of the volcano collapsed um, uh, into the empty magma chamber uh, under the ground, um, creating this Great Depression that we call a caldera, um, popularly known as a a crater. Um, And that became filled with water and became Crater Lake. Now, when the first Europeans got to that area uh, in the 19th century and they spoke to the Native Americans, the Klamath people, who lived there um they heard from many different Klamath sources the story of this eruption the story of how there had once been a huge mountain there um that had collapsed in on itself um a, a story there's no way around um a- a- um believing has to have been passed down for at least 7,600 years. Because like I say, we can date volcanic eruptions with with a high degree of precision. So there's a a magnificent example from uh, the Western United States. Um, But I often reflect on that and I think, well, there were probably dozens of other examples like that. It's simply that they, the stories weren't recorded um, in time, um, mm. and uh, as a result, they they have been lost. And you know, it's something I think about a lot: the the loss of knowledge and the fact that you know, really, we're just picking up a few crumbs where we can we can see them. Um, but that when we think about the condition of humanity, you know, three, four, five hundred years ago, um, the amount of knowledge that people had in their heads that has never been written down was ma- was, was was massive, um, and and all that has essentially been lost by the the spread of of literacy. And of course, the privileging of, of literacy—what I would call the uncritical privileging of literacy—the um, the fact that people assume, well, if it's not written down, it's not worth anything, you know. Mm. And if I can't look it up in a in, in a book or an encyclopedia or online, then uh, you know, it's it's not important. Mm. Um, and I think that um, humanity has has lost a lot by by that.
0: Yeah, I and mean, the great thing about your work is that it turns the idea on its head. You know, the, the idea that. Oral traditions are unreliable, and the written word is reliable. I mean, you've completely turned it on its head, which is very. Uh, is, I mean, I feel good about that, <laughs> you know, because for my for my own personal reasons. But have you have you looked at at all? Because I'm living in Mexico at the moment, um, so you know we've got like you've got the sort of Aztec and the Mayan cultures, or the remnants of them. Um, and have you is that something you've, you've dug into a lot? No, I'm afraid not. Um, I, I, I grew up in
1: in the UK, and uh, I had a Scottish grandmother, uh, and she used to tell me all these stories, these so-called myths and legends from Scotland. And um, and you know, in a tribute to her, in the last uh, year or so, I've I've done an analysis of Scottish myths and legends about um, about sea rising and land rising and things like that, which which has just been published, and I'm I'm really proud of that and. You know, clearly, if I if I had another sort of 500 years to do this kind of research, you know, I'd certainly get on to uh, Central America. Um, but it's you, you can't do everything, Brendan. But uh, you know, I I would you know I'm always happy if people sort of approach me and say, look, um, I, I've got this data set, and how would I go about analyzing it? And mm. I, I think one of the things that everyone who starts doing or starts thinking about supposed Myths and legends and their their likely empirical base um, is you, you've got to understand that the people who uh, created these stories um, were not fantasists. They were not myth makers in the sense that we use that term today. They were. People who were seriously trying to understand their world and their place in it, and the meaning and the causes of of particular events, particularly extreme events, in exactly the same way as we do today. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that their worldview was different, so that when you know thousands of years later we read um, their their analysis of what was happening thousands of years ago we think oh how incredibly naive you know giants and mermaids and, and and things like that you know we think this is this is fantasy you know these people were you know created stories to to entertain themselves and to entertain people after that um, but i think that's all complete nonsense i, I really do um, you know i don't think anyone you know 500 5000 years ago had the time to create stories and and to write fiction in the way that people um, invent things today. I think they were pragmatists. Mm. Uh, and the one thing that drove them, and we see this in Australian cultures, the one thing that drove them was the survival of their bloodline. Um, if, if you didn't teach your children... Everything that you knew and your ancestors had passed down to you, your children's chance of survival was reduced as a consequence. So um, you told stories, um, you sang songs, you 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 drew pictures in in the sand or on the rocks. You um, you took the knowledge that that you had and you passed it on to them, and you made sure they understood it because it was about survival particularly in places like australia where the environment is very harsh and you know finding water and finding food and you know um getting getting through long droughts is is um is something that has always happened so um yeah that that kind of knowledge was all about survival um and and today we've repurposed a lot of that so we think today of myths and legends as, as stories. Um, and we create our own stories and, and we've developed a love of, of narrative, a love of fiction. Um, but I think that's really all repurposing ancient knowledge and, and the way that it was or the reasons why it was created uh, in the first place. Mm. Sorry, I mean, I'm on a bit of a soapbox there,
0: Brendan. No, no, no but it's great. It's great. And I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, today we we are, I mean, there are still significant portions of the population that believe in anthropomorphic gods or an anthropomorphic type of god. It's not like we've div- divested ourselves of these types of concepts. Um, some people are very much still uh, on board and ens- ensnared with them, uh, you might say. So, There's a, it's like we've, we've been trained in the sort of mainstream conventional sort of mode of thinking to conceive of these ancient people as i think simpletons really like they were just kind of like when they weren't sort of you know scratching in the dirt they were making up these ridiculous stories and we shouldn't take any of that seriously um so you know i'm again very grateful that you've actually completely turned that on its head and you did mention um scotland your scottish grandmother what else about scotland have you have you learned that really has has you know struck you as remarkable in this this work
1: Well, it's really, in Scotland, you have two types of stories. You have stories about the ocean rising and covering the land and creating islands where it was just a single landmass before. And you have stories about the land rising um, above the ocean. And when you look at what has happened over the last... 15,000 years or so in Scotland, since the last ice age ended. Um, In some places, land has gone up, and in some places, uh, land has gone down relative to the sea. And we've identified, or I've identified, 15 groups of stories in Scotland. And the ones that talk about the land going down and the sea level rising, and the ones that talk about the land going up and the sea level falling, match perfectly to um, what actually happened. So I'm using my expertise as a geologist, uh, and I'm saying, this is what happened in Scotland in the last 15,000 years. Some bits went up, some bits went down. And if you look at these 15 groups of myths, they match perfectly, Mm -hmm. those places, okay? You don't find any stories of land going down in places where the land went up, and so on and so on. So it's a beautiful demonstration, to me at least, um, of how these ancient stories are not fictions. They could not possibly be fictions, because it's it's 15-0, um, the score sheet. You know, there, there are 15 groups of stories that match the science perfectly, okay? If these stories were made up, you'd expect um, them to be all over the place, but they're not. Mm. So, to me, they represent authentic memories of uh, of what actually happened. And again, we're putting ages on these of six, seven, eight, nine thousand 9,000 years uh, old, Um Ago, sorry. There's one great story um, from the Monarch Islands in the Outer Hebrides, and this is a small group of islands off the main coast of a of a large island called North Uist. And the people uh, in the Monarch Islands um, in the 1860s, they were visited by someone who was collecting stories, and they told this person Alexander Carmichael stories about how the Monarch Islands were once joined to north uist and people could walk across um, backwards and forwards between the two islands Um, and then the sea rose and it covered the isthmus between the two islands it covered the area of land Um, and the stories that the people in the monarch islands told um included the names of the people who last were able to cross this and the people who then drowned trying to cross it so it was clearly um a memory that was current amongst the people of the Outer Hebrides, um, you know, in the 1860s, and and we suggest that it's probably about 8,000 years ago that this land connection between those two islands was covered. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when you scratch the surface of stories in other places, um, you find that they are of a you know a similar antiquity to. Um, well, I haven't talked about the Australian stories, but the Australian stories. So, um, sorry, Brendan, I'm talking too much.
0: No, no, don't apologize. It's, uh, it's very, very interesting. So, the the overcoming of preconceptions was something you mentioned earlier. And, you know, because there seems to be this dichotomy of, on the one hand, we, we're in the mainstream world, uh, we're encouraged to think of the world as being, you know, the world now is the way it was, you know. Five thousand years ago, ten thousand years ago, like there's this static sort of view that we are encouraged on some level to adopt, and like things would things could have been a little bit different, but not that different. Um, But here you are, and you know anyone doing this kind of work is showing that things were actually radically different. And um, and one thing I wanted to ask before, maybe before we get to, and this might lead into the Australian stuff, but um, maybe you could outline sort of the basics of the sea level. Change, the sea level rising, and give like just a little bit of a timeline on a, in a generic or uh, general sense for people. Absolutely. So, twenty thousand
1: years ago, um, there were lots of people around in many different parts of the Earth. Twenty thousand years ago was the coldest time of the last ice age, which began about ninety thousand years ago and ended about ten thousand years ago. But twenty thousand years ago was the coldest time of the last ice age, and there were thick ice sheets that covered most of Canada, most of uh, the northern parts of uh, Asia. And in order to create those ice sheets on land, the water came from the oceans. So when the ice sheets formed on the land, the ocean levels dropped as a result. So not only was it really cold 20,000 years ago in most parts of the world, but also the ocean surface was around 125, just over 400 feet lower than it is today. So the geography of the Ice Age world was quite, quite different to what it is today. Um, uh, Yeah, you know, what what are today islands off the coast were joined to adjacent islands or to to adjacent mainlands, and um, there was a lot more land around um unfortunately a lot of it was was too cold for for people and and other creatures to actually uh to actually move across um so 20,000 years ago that was the coldest time of the last ice age um and then things started to warm up um and they warmed up quite quickly in geological terms so um most of the ice was uh melted um by around 6,000 years ago. And the sea level, the ocean surface had risen by the same 125 meters, the same 410 feet or so um, that it had fallen um, before the ice age. So there was a very, very rapid rise of the ocean surface, a rise of sea level that drowned many of the fringes of the land. Um, And there were people um, on those lands. And one of the things that my research is showing clearly is that the ocean surface rose this 125 meters between about 15,000 and about 6,000 years ago. Um, So in around 9,000 years, it rose a massive amount. And it disrupted generation after generation after generation of coastal dwellers in almost every part of the world. Um, And it created trauma. um, And that trauma has come down to us today in the forms of stories about um, dramatic sea level rise um, and the way people perceived its causes. And, you know, we've got some great stories from a couple of places in Australia that recall people thinking the ocean is going to keep rising and eventually it's going to cover the entire land and we're all going to die. So what can we do about this? Okay, so just as sea level is rising today and we talk about well what can we do about it people 7 8000 years ago were doing the same thing sea level had been rising for thousands of years it was causing all sorts of problems to um to embryonic human societies in every part of the world um and people were therefore thinking well what can we do about this um and it's it's really interesting to explore this
0: no it is i mean very, very interesting. I, I was reading your article today with uh, was it Margaret Cook co-written with mm. Margaret? Um, and that's it, so I've got some of this a little bit fresh in my mind. Um, and I'd love to get into to dig into some of the the Australian stories because they seem to be some of the more the more ancient ones that you've uncovered. And, uh, I mean, I love the timeline. It, it pushes things so far back in terms of, you know, that oral tradition and their knowledge, their knowledge base is, is insanely ancient. I mean, we know we, there's a general belief that they've been here for tens of thousands of years, but I mean, you can now show. At least at least ten thousand worth of oral tradition, from the looks of things. So maybe let's uh, let's segue into into Australia because that seems to be you you seem to have a, a the view that it's a bit of a unique it's a unique entity Australia in the grand scheme of things.
1: I th- I think it is yes because people probably arrived in Australia about seventy thousand years ago, and since that time up until the year 1788 when Europeans settled Australia, um, since for, for most of that 70,000 years, people have remained comparatively isolated in Australia um, because there's a, there's a big ocean gap all the way around. So what that means in terms of cultural evolution is that um, the culture evolved on its own terms without being influenced by people coming in from elsewhere and imposing their own culture and their own stories and their own memories and worldviews on indigenous Australian uh, cultures so that's the first thing that I think is uh, important about Australia and there's really nowhere else in the world where you can go back you know even more than ten thousand years and and say um, these people have were, were isolated for most of the time that they lived in this particular place. Um, there, there aren't situations like that. So Australia is is unique from that point of view. Um, and uh, and look, we now have 33 groups of stories from all the way around Australia, which is a a country or a continent the size of the conterminous United States or Europe. Um, and uh, these 33 groups of stories um all say essentially the same thing, which is at some point in the past, the coastline, which is here today, was much, much further out to sea. Um, and there was much more land over which people um, people moved. Um, and there are many Indigenous Aboriginal communities in Australia that have names for places uh and histories of places that are now under the ocean, which, which supports this kind of thing. But these stories talk about when the shoreline was further out to sea, when what are today islands offshore were joined uh, to the mainland, um, when um, when things were quite, quite different. And if you look at the history of australia since the last ice age um the rise in the ocean surface caused by the melting of the land ice sheets um has caused australia to shrink by almost a quarter it's about 23 percent of land lost and in some places the coastline has moved in thousands of kilometers you know um sorry, I think in kilometers and not miles, but uh, thousands of kilometers uh, inland. So the geography of the Australian coastline has has changed profoundly uh, in the last 20,000 years or so. Um, And this, of course, had uh, impacts on people, particularly those who lived close to the coast. Um, And that, I think, represents the, the kind of multi-generational trauma that people felt uh, and therefore led to them encoding their experiences in oral traditions, many of which have come down to us today. And that brings me to the second point about Australia, which which is that it's a very, very harsh environment. So the imperative of teaching your children um, or giving them all the knowledge that you have to assist their survival to optimize their chances of survival is huge okay if you don't tell your children about what happens during a drought when they experience a drought they'll all die so it's it's uh, it, it's a simple equation so you, the oral traditions in australia which include geography and history and all sorts of practical knowledge place based um is, uh, is really a feature a conspicuous feature of australian uh, society and we know from ethnographic reports that um this was something that was taken very seriously so rather than the sort of the the, the jolly sort of storytelling around the campfire you know it may have been around a campfire and, uh, but it was it was solid instruction you know you had to know these stories you had to know them and To test your knowledge, you had to repeat them to, um, you know, your cousins and your cousins tested you uh, and backwards and forwards. So it was like an examination system. Mm -hmm. Um, So seriously did did people take that knowledge. And I think that really um, explains the replication fidelity, the the idea that these stories have been passed down for thousands and thousands of years, um, hardly changing uh, at all in terms of their content. And then coming back to your last point, how can we know how old these stories are? Um, Sea level or the ocean surface reached its present level around Australia about 7,000 years ago. Um, It's different to Europe. It's different to other places. So we have really, really good evidence that 7,000 years ago, the ocean surface around Australia was about the same as it is today. So it follows that any stories that talk about when the ocean surface was lower and the coastline further out must be more than 7,000 years old. Um, And we've looked at these 33 groups of stories and we've said, okay, um, this story refers to a time in this place when the shoreline was 20 meters lower than it is today. Um, When was the last time that that condition was met? Oh, The last time that condition was met was 9,300 years ago, for example. Um, So we are able to put ages, minimum ages, on each of these 33 groups of stories. Um, And you're absolutely right. They show that these stories um, date from roughly about 7,000 years ago to um, an incredible 13,000 years ago in, in some places, particularly around the Great Barrier Reef. I always emphasize, Brendan, that these are not precise numbers. they're they are they are the best possible estimates that we can give based on the data that is available. Um, and no one is is pretending, least of all me that that they are they are written in stone. Um, but at the same time, so what? I mean it, you know if if they're wrong by a few hundred, even a thousand years, it doesn't really matter that much yeah. because the overall point, Is that stories in the Australian context have endured, uh, demonstrably endured for thousands and thousands of years.
0: Yeah. And you were talking about, you know, Scotland and and Fiji, where these different groups of communities have these different interlocking, you know, complementary stories that all fit together, these puzzle pieces that fit together. So it's very hard to argue with that kind of thing. Um, It's very, it's very persuasive, I guess, unless you have some kind of very strong pre-existing bias against this type of perspective you'll find the full video and any bonus materials in my exclusive members-only portal the truth this unique creation is the official home for all my multimedia research and entertainment content updated regularly my members get access to absolutely everything i create including full podcasts courses articles videos audio files the whole enchilada book your spot at TruthAversity.com.